0: are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert! No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot, or even possibly the ending, so just be warned. Lost in Translation which came out in 2003. It was directed by Sofia Coppola. It stars Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson, Giovanni Ribisi, Akiko Takashita, Diamond Yukai, Catherine Lambert, and Anna Ferris. The genre would be comedy-drama. For relaxing times, make it Santori time. Cut, 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 cut! Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Holland! What are you doing? My husband's a photographer, so he's here working. He wasn't doing anything, so I came along. Can you give a secret? I'm trying to organize a prison break. I'm looking for like an accomplice. <laughs> we have to first get out of this bar, then the hotel, then the city, and then the country. Are you in or are you out? I'm in. Really? This is such a bizarre little movie that when described on paper just feels problematic sight unseen. Big-time former movie star in his late 50s and married gets paid a couple of million dollars by an advertiser to pose for some liquor ads and spends about a week in Tokyo at a fancy hotel on their dime feels disaffected and starts a mostly chaste sort of romance over several nights with a recent college grad in her early 20s who just got married and yet is feeling lonely herself as her husband is always working. Oh, and towards the end of that week, said former movie star inexplicably has a one-night stand with that hotel's lounge singer whom he has already made clear that he cannot stand. And, despite taking place in Tokyo, most of the Japanese characters are portrayed as one-note stereotypes. You are a movie star. Yes. Yes, movie I pack. should be doing star. movies. Yeah, uh, but and the lat pack. Lat pack, you know lat pack? Rat Red pack. Lat pack oh, please. Rat please. Rat. Pay more tension please. What? You so gentleman. Yes. A Ring a ding ding. Yeah. Shinatora? You know Shinatora? Old blue eyes. Yeah, it's good, yeah. it's more of Dino, that's Dino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joey Bishop, would you like? Yes, just change here. With none given any depth and much of the humor at their expense. To be fair, though, so are all the non-Japanese characters. Thanks, Anna Faris. Japan, the best out of all Asian countries is because I really feel close to um, Buddhism. I'm, I really feel I really believe in reincarnation. That's part of what drew me to Midnight Velocity as well because although Keanu dies he eventually gets reincarnated. So there's hope. But there's hope in reincarnation I think. What was it like working with Keanu Reeves. He was, always so, he was always, you know, giving me ideas and, you know, really helpful. Like made me feel really comfortable. So, and we both have two dogs. And we both live in L.A. So we have all these different things in common. So, you know, we both really like um, Mexican food and yoga and karate. <laughs> it just should not work, honestly. And yet... Thanks to sterling performances from the two main leads, Marie and Johansson, a fantastic retro soundtrack of mostly new wave era needle drops, lush but scaled down, almost documentary-like at times, cinematography from D.P. Lance Accord, who would later collaborate with the same director a few years later on the very underrated Marie Antoinette, and most importantly, the gentle touch from writer-director Sofia Coppola, this movie not only works as a compelling and absorbing hangout movie, but it also always manages to have me feeling some empathy for the movie star character at the end. It's a truly emotional story, even though there is minimal overt emotion being expressed by anyone for most of its runtime. Of course, Bill Murray playing the main star Bob Harris helps somewhat. He's kind of played smart-ass characters like this before, but not like this guy. Rewatching this for the first time in years, I think one aspect that helps is that this might be one of the few times I can recall of Murray really playing up his actual Midwestern accent. I know it seems kind of silly, but compared to his attempts in movies like Ghostbusters or Quick Change or Scrooged to try to sound more New York, which he's not, as Murray hailed from Chicago originally, this guy just comes off as more authentic and sincere. It gets a whole lot more complicated when you have kids. Yeah scary it's the most terrifying day of your life the day the first one is born nobody ever tells you that your life as you know it is gone never to return but they learn how to walk and they learn how to talk and and you want to be with them and they turn out to be the most delightful people you will ever meet in your life but he gives a full-on relatable performance with depth as an apparent has-been just kind of coasting through life without any clue as to what to do next It also helps that he's playing against the then 18-year-old, yeah, she was, Scarlett Johansson, who was kind of a revelation here, playing the aimless Charlotte, often staring out windows in her underwear while smoking cigarettes. Hey, sorry, the very first shot of the movie doesn't let us forget this. A couple of years prior, Johansson had already given a sterling performance playing a disaffected youth in Ghost World, but this just felt like an intimate step up into grown-up territory for the actress. Hey. Oh my God, how's Tokyo? It's great here. It's really great, um, I don't know, I went to this shrine today, mm-hmm. and, um, there were these monks and they were chanting, and I didn't feel anything, you know, and, um, I don't know, I, I, I even tried Ikebana, and John is using these hair products, I just, I don't know who I married. Oh, can you, wait a second, just hold on, I'll be right back. Okay, sure. Sorry. Uh, What were you saying? Nothing, it's okay. I'll call you later, okay? Okay, have the best time, you know? Just call me when you get back, okay? Bye. Bye. Love you. She's very effective at coming off like an old soul who's clearly on edge about her life in general, even though she looks like early 2000s bombshell Johansson, dressing down in sweaters. Okay. To his credit, I don't think that Murray has ever looked to this almost movie star handsome on screen. Seriously, this dude looks arguably younger and healthier than his winger character in previous episodes, Stripes, more than 20 years prior. Although, cocaine might have been a factor at the time. Most of the movie takes place at the high-rise hotel, as these two generally hang out at the bar, each other's rooms on occasion, often giving this feel of a chamber piece. Though we do see these characters venture out, more so Johansson's Charlotte, who has some genuinely quiet but affecting moments visiting gardens and shrines by herself. It's hard to explain how, but it's just all engrossing to watch as presented by Miss Coppola. Bordering on travelogue at points, but never seeming showy or perfunctory. We're following someone who is likely on the first real adventure of her life. I'm talking about Charlotte. All the scenery looks gorgeous, but also sufficiently alien from Johansson's perspective, who hits all the right notes with her performance. In essence, thanks to the performances and the writing and the directing, of course, we witness our two leads form an almost instant friendship, which feels very natural. Gatsu massage in my room. Oh, mm, that's nice. And the tightness has completely uh, disappeared mm. and been replaced by unbelievable pain, <laughs> staggering, unbearable Ugh, pain. Oh, that's too bad. I'm in pain. I yeah. got my foot banged up. Want to see it? How do you say no? Oh my god! I know. That's how. When did you do this? I did it the other day. It hurts. You know. Didn't you feel any pain? You. Yeah, it really hurt. It was... yeah, that toe is almost dead. <laughs> I think I got to take you to a doctor. You can't uh, just put that back in the shoe. No, we don't think so. Well, you either go to a doctor or you leave it here. <laughs> He's smiling. You like that idea? See, they love black toe over in this country. <laughs> you got a sharp knife? You gotta be, you know, this country. Somebody's got to prefer black toe. Oh, black toe. Or we should probably hang around until someone orders it. Hey, what's with the straight face? Hospital regulations. Get in there. All right. And yes, none of this would work without the film's very touching ending, which is basically a bittersweet goodbye between Bob and Charlotte with the most critical dialogue being kept inaudible. In the 20 years since this movie was first released, those words whispered by Murray into Scarlett's ear have been the subject of much speculation, and for good reason. That this film remains a masterpiece for Coppola is a testament to her confidence as a filmmaker even early in her career, as this was just her second movie at the time, understanding that even the most emotional moments for a story can benefit from a little mystery. Bottom line, this is just a movie that will sneak up on you if you allow it to. This brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Because music is essential to film. As I already mentioned, this movie just has a fantastic soundtrack. Definitely one of the best of its era. And this is during an all-time low point for movie music in general. Yes, you've heard me commiserate about the early 2000s on previous reviews. The age of Limp Bizkit, Ja Rule, Britney, sorry, Sum 41, Nelly, and (laughs) Linkin Park. Fortunately, with regards to this film's soundscape, Coppola went in a very different direction, with a mixture of retro new wave, contemporary European dream pop, and a minimalist techno score from Kevin Shields. Born in Queens, New York, but also raised in Dublin, Ireland, Shields is also the lead vocalist and guitarist for the renowned Irish-British alternative rock band My Bloody Valentine, which also did contribute one song to the soundtrack, alongside more contemporary bands with similar sounds like Death in Vegas, Air, and French indie pop band Phoenix, who were really coming up at the time. One memorable needle drop occurs about halfway through as we are treated to the band's very first commercially released single during a fun high-rise party that Bob and Charlotte are attending. It's a catchy ditty from their first album, which is called "Too Too Young. As for the more retro stuff... Well, much of that is heard during a sublimely entertaining karaoke sequence where both Bob and Charlotte are performing. It's definitely an illuminating sequence as well, just based on the song choices. I mean, do we learn something about Bob as a character, given his bizarre choice of songs to perform at karaoke? I would undoubtedly say yes, as it is a stretch to be able to belt out high-end vocal product from the likes of Elvis Costello or Roxy Music, Ryan Ferry. Even when 100% sober, I would have to imagine that Costello's peace, love, and understanding has to be a significant challenge. Is there only pain and hatred and misery? And it's time I feel like there's one thing I want to know What's so funny about peace, love, But for me, the musical highlight has to be an absolute 80s new wave classic, which closes out the film as we see Charlotte wistfully walking away from Bob in the middle of a Tokyo crowd. Then Bob being driven to the airport in a taxi. I'm talking about the Jesus and Mary Chain from their 1986 debut album, Psycho Candy. Such a gorgeous note to end this story on. The song, of course, is Just Like Honey. The next category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, one common criticism of this film, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, has been the complete lack of depth given to every other local Japanese character who our two protagonists encounter on their adventure, along with every notable American character who they encounter. And I get the reasoning for that, and most of the performances generally work, including a very thankless but nonetheless memorable turn by Catherine Lambert as the, quote, jazz singer. Yes, that's how she's actually referred to in the credits. (laughs) Thank you. We're glad to be here. We're Sausalito. But from my standpoint, there's one exception, and that would be the actor chosen to play Charlotte's dorky, jet-setting photographer, husband, John. I'm referring to Giovanni Rabisi, and I might be biased because I happen to really like this actor. Rabisi's a good actor, and back then he was on the come up with promising performances in movies like previous episodes Saving Private Ryan, and a movie that I absolutely love from this era, the stock trading drama Boiler Room. He's the star. And he's also played jerkish guys before. Don't get me wrong. He actually did a nice job of portraying one in Avatar, the original Avatar. So here with this role, he's just really not given anything to do as his character has hardly any personality and is kind of even barely articulate. Kind of just mumbling. It's just a strange nothing part for such a critical character. I mean, I get how this person is supposed to be a neglectful husband, but it could still be given a little dimension or at least made a little more interesting. Yeah. No, call me, okay? Yeah, okay. All right, listen, I'm under Evelyn Waugh. Oh, 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 Shh. oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Arigato. Arigato. Yeah. yeah. Ah! Mushy, mushy. <laughs> Evelyn Wall. Uh, uh, what? Evelyn Wall was a man. Oh, come on. She's nice. What? N- you know, you know, not everybody went to Yale. Overall, this doesn't really take away from the movie that much, but it just feels on paper like a minor waste of this actor's talent. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. If I'm being honest, one of my favorite aspects of this movie is that I just kind of love watching these two amble through various crowded locations, whether they be karaoke bars, arcades, or even a hospital at one point. And never more so than about 45 minutes into the movie, as the camera just kind of follows our two main characters... Charlotte and Bob running through the streets of Tokyo with some of Charlotte's friends, apparently being momentarily chased by some other gang of friends who are shooting toy machine guns at them? it's all just so disarmingly joyous and playful even dare i say childish <laughs> clearly this sequence just kind of worked for me as i've always had an interest in visiting tokyo since seeing it what can i say and now the final category and that would be the mvp This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. This was only the second feature film to be directed by Sofia Coppola, just a few years after a pretty promising debut The Virgin Suicides. Good movie. It was both a critical and commercial smash, leading to Coppola receiving three Oscar nominations for it, including Best Original Screenplay, Best Picture, and, as she was only the third woman to receive this, a nomination for Best Director. No, she did end up winning for Best Screenplay, and she lost the other two awards, to Return of the King, and its director Peter Jackson, which is perfectly understandable just considering how much of a juggernaut his Lord of the Rings trilogy was at the time. Regardless, it's one hell of an achievement, as this is actually, when you think about it, a pretty atypical movie to get so much Oscar attention. It's generally quiet, intimate, and there's really no overlying message. It's really just about two people connecting under unique circumstances. The whole story is structured by Coppola as an intentionally aimless narrative, often seeming like vignettes, but it's never less than engrossing at any point. This is very much a vibe movie, and you're either on its wavelength or you're not. And like I said, on paper, there are just so many ill-advised directions that this story could have gone. Undoubtedly, the two lead performances play a big part in that, but at the end of the day, it comes down to a sharp screenplay and truly assured direction. For pulling this off with a plum, resulting in a very engaging and entertaining movie, Sofia Coppola is the MVP. And I, I also think people in, real life, in life, like in movies, they always say their feelings. And I'm like, people don't say their feelings most of the time. So how do you show what they're feeling through what they don't say or what the, with the action of, with some behavior? And I, I'm so interested in the in the spaces in between and, and what people, how they express themselves. But they, I feel like, yeah, a lot of times people don't really say what they're feeling directly. So... I didn't want him to say it like this all meant so much to me and it's changed my life. You know, I think you convey that and then the audience can can put their own version of that. My rating for Lost in Translation would be five stars out of five. Now celebrating its 20th anniversary, this movie still holds up as an affecting chaste romance, a touch-and-coming-of-age drama, an appealing travelogue for Tokyo and its outlying areas, and as far as I'm concerned, also a highly entertaining hangout movie, which I'm just always a sucker for. It's a treasure. And if you're looking to watch Lost in Translation, it is currently streaming on Netflix. And that ends another peace, love, and understanding review. Yeah, and I'm sober. <laughs> Please like, subscribe and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema.